everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm your host, Charles Maxwood, and I'm here with Chris Matman. Uh, Chris, it's it's funny because I saw his name pop up and we emailed back and forth to set this up. And I was like, I've interviewed him before. And I was like, and I think it was a while ago. So I went and looked. It was 2011 and it was at ApacheCon in Vancouver. <laughs> and yeah, it's been a while. So I did do a little digging. You're still at JPL. And yeah, it's been 10 years. But what else is new? I guess newish if it's been 10 years. I, it's like, hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Charles. And and what part of life is new? I mean, I mean, besides a global pandemic and you know, oh, yeah. something that hasn't yeah. ha- happened in a hundred years. But yeah, that's no. I mean, it's just a small thing. Just a small thing. No, I was I was trying to remember even 20, 2010, 2011. Gosh, you know, I mean, I was a, a different person then. I mean, besides even yeah. the weight, it's probably 50, 60 pounds away. No, yeah, I mean, it's. I, w- I was really involved in open source a lot. I remember our interview touched on a lot of that, you know, back then. And uh, yeah. yeah, you know, I'm still at JPL. You know, my role back then was a little bit different. I was on the board of Apache back then, and I was mm-hmm. really like an individual contributor making a lot of technology and trying to get it open sourced and things like that. And my role, you know, recently in the, I don't know, the past five years of JPL has been moving more into kind of like technical and people in line management. And uh, I recently was appointed the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at JPL, and now I manage oh, wow. like, our, our multifunctional innovation team in uh, IT. Cool, very cool. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So yeah, it's a few changes there. (laughs) So you you wrote this book on TensorFlow. How do you have time for that with three kids and everything else you've got going on? My God. So I wonder that sometimes myself. So the trick, the trick with the, (laughs) the, the trick with the, uh, with the TensorFlow book was sort of a couple of things. So, you know, I'm a Manning author. I had written a book about 10 years ago called Tika in Action. I guess the best way to describe Tika is it's the digital babble fish. Mm-hmm. You know, if you like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you put the babble fish to your ear and you can understand any language. Tika is like the same thing for file formats. And probably its most famous thing ever was it helped solve the Panama Papers. Uh, you can look it up on Wikipedia. And, and so... So I get the books as a Manning author. They offer, you know, I can say, oh, I like that book or I want to read this book. Mm-hmm. All of my team is into machine learning. You know, all the innovation people, whether it's PyTorch, TensorFlow, whatever, you know, yeah. I didn't, two years ago, I was like, what the hell is, I mean, I I did some clustering and machine learning for my PhD dissertation like 15 mm-hmm. years ago, whatever. But I was like, I really wanted to know what it was about. So I got a book, the first version of this book written by a guy, Nishant Shukla, who was a PhD student in computer vision at UCLA, graduated uh-huh. in 2017. And the first version of this book, uh, Machine Learning with TensorFlow, was just, it was a, a pleasure to read. I was like, hey, can I get this book? They sent it to me and I, I'm reading through it. But as opposed to just reading the book, one thing I did differently, and we were still going to work back then physically, you know, pre-pandemic. 
mm-hmm. is I took out Notepad, and a, you know I started drawing matrices, and I started pulling out a Jupyter notebook and trying to code along with it. And what I realized after about nine months of doing that, Charles, is that I had a crap ton of Jupyter notebooks, like solved mm-hmm. problems, like basically everywhere where Nishant said, oh, I'm training a classifier. You may want to grab the IMDB data set and build a sentiment classifier and blah, blah. I did it. Right. I took his like rando suggestions and did it. And so I looked <laughs> and, and, nice. and I was like, dude, these are hard. You know, they're like graduate level assignments and doing it. And so, uh-huh. yeah, by, by the time I did it, I had enough content for a new book. I knew I had fixed all the bugs because, you know, it had been years since he had published his mm-hmm. book and TensorFlow changed. Right. And, you know, also just side note on this is like, what everyone likes and they chase, you know, I tend to do the other thing. <laughs> I like to just be different. So my whole team was like into the PyTorch and whatever. And so I kind of took it on myself. I was like, I want to learn TensorFlow just to be different. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, I got I got into TensorFlow that way. I had enough material for a new book. And that's how I got started on it. I gotcha. So is this a second edition of the other book then? It is. It's a second edition of the first of of the first book. It, what it adds is about half a dozen, maybe that's I think seven new chapters that I writ I wrote from whole cloth. I revised all the mm-hmm. chapters, made all the code work again, and added and sprinkled kind of my voice into that. A lot of Nishant's voice is still there as well. Um, and yeah, and then the new chapters I added. I mean, you know, gee whiz, they're nothing. It's just building a production sentiment classifier that you could deploy. It's taking Android. Uh, user positional data and inferring mm-hmm. what they're doing based on where you're walking from an accelerometer. Uh, it's training uh, part of speech tagger, uh, you know, that compares with, you know, the state of the art uh, that was used in the aperture mm-hmm. pause tagger. Let's see what else. It's autoencoders. It's doing autoencoders for the CIFAR data set. It's training a brand new VGG facial identification classifier. And along the way, I recreated the VGG data set, which wasn't accessible anymore. So it was like originally 2.4 million images of celebrities, only about 1.2 mm-hmm. million of them still exist. I made it available, distributed it on TAC, and we published a paper at Supercomputing. And then it wraps up with a new chapter on basically like, you know, your home assistant, like Alexa. Oops, sorry. Right. Don't don't turn on Alexa. Google. Google <laughs> assist, <laughs> ignore me, Alexa. Google Home, you know, and all that. The uh-huh. same way. It's listening. You know, it's an LSTM implementation of the Baidu right. deep speech model that, you know, I rebuild with TensorFlow and show you how to do that from whole cloth. Those are all the new chapters I added. Very cool. Well, I'm still a relative new uh, neophyte, new programmer at, at TensorFlow. You know, I, I've downloaded it and I've fiddled with it some. But let's imagine that for a second that we have somebody who's brand new to this, right? They're, they're probably a competent programmer in, you know, a mainstream language like Java or JavaScript or something, uh, or Python, because it seems like TensorFlow and Python are kind of the, the way to go. How do they need to start thinking about things in order to get started with TensorFlow? Sure. So, so and even, I'll take it up even one level from that to get started with machine learning in general. Mm-hmm. So how, do, how does one machine learning, <laughs> you know, how do we do it? So basically the way right. that we do it is sort of recognize this. There's a couple of different steps. There's the step to train basically a model, you know, which may be built from either like a mathematical equation, eventually a biological or neurological model, like a neural network or things like that. And what a model does is it captures basically input and some transformation of that input to typically some predictive output. Uh, or classification, or a grouping of things, and all of that. So right. we start off by thinking of building a model. 
And there's a process to basically build that model and train it. And so you have to divide in your mind the training process to construct a model, then ways of evaluating how well that model is doing during the step which we call inference, which is mm-hmm. using the model to predict something, and then deciding how well it predicts and, and does that um, and so forth. And then, there, you know, that's an oversimplification, but that's the start. Now, going down into TensorFlow to build a model, we divide the world up into tensors. And what tensors are, are basically matrices. They're either one-dimensional vectors or linear mm-hmm. equations that transform those vectors. And the vectors could be different things. Like you might be taking a vector of continuous number data that's the set of phone calls, uh, the number of phone calls in a call center per month, and then trying to take based on the past and each data point in that vector of how many per month and predict how many you're going to have next year in the same month or something like that. So it could be continuous data. It could be discrete data. I give you a bunch of basically input classes. I give you an apple, a banana, and an orange, and then Mm -hmm. I show you a picture of a kumquat and you try and tell me what it is, you know, based on that, you know, or, or something <laughs> yep. like that. And so that's, so data is continuous or it's discrete. And then mm-hmm. you decide what type of model you're trying to build. If data is continuous and you want to predict something, we call that a regression model. You're trying to predict a continuous value or plot a line in like, you know, two-dimensional space and then tell me what the next continuous value on that line anywhere is. Right. If it's a discrete input, in that vector or that tensor, that matrix, and I'll, I'll differentiate tensors from matrices in a second. But if it's a non-continuous model, like a discrete model, like a set of categorical choices in a class where you're trying to classify something, we call that classification. That's building mm-hmm. a classification model. And those are the start. And, and by the way, this is how the book goes. I'm just taking you along the path of the book. The book is more than TensorFlow. It's the study of machine learning too. And I could have, I could have titled it Machine Learning with TensorFlows and Friends, <laughs> you know, Jupyter, right. uh, you know, SciPy, Pandas, NumPy, you know, all the mm-hmm. things that you need in Python to data science and to do machine learning. Right. But yeah, so then you got regression, classification. And then in those things, you all need labeled data. You need you need both what happened in the past with some mm-hmm. you know level of confidence and then to predict the future so you need that labeled data the other the next step is if you don't have any labeled data and i just give you a bunch of say vectors or you know tensors or matrices and then i want you to tell me something about it we call that unsupervised learning and the mm-hmm. un, the something you could tell me about it could be clustering you want to group it you know into different groups just like inherently you might go to your collection of i don't want to say dvds cuz that'll date myself i could have said <laughs> i could have said laserdisc but uh you know beyond that you know you go to a collection of blu-rays and do people even still have those? Anyways, so you go to your collection of we Blu-rays. have we have them. Right here, <laughs> <Yeah. so. laughs> okay, Whew, I know I'm all on Disney Plus and digital now too. But uh, yes. you know, we can talk about that later. But yeah, so you go to those and you inherently just group your Blu-rays, say by category or things like that. Guess what you've mm-hmm. done? You've done unsupervised clustering. No one told you what the groups were. You sort of inferred how they should be delineated and you know right. based on some some features of the data. So then we talk about that. That's something you got to understand in machine learning. And, and then we round out, these are, these are called traditional machine learning models because they don't, say, use a biologically or neurologically inspired neural network, which we can talk about later. But these traditional models, there's regression, you know, classification, depending on the da- type of data input, continuous or discrete. There's unsupervised learning. We didn't tell you the labels. Mm-hmm. And then there's probabilistic models and things. And we actually cover these. I cover this in the book. They're called hidden Markov models. And basically what these are are sort of like the following. Again, 
based on observations of what's happening. But the hidden Markov model makes an observation that you actually, what you see is not the direct cause of something. It's actually a hidden cause. And based on what you see, like, say you look at the, say you try and like look at the temperature and predict the weather, you know, from it. That's not a direct sort of correlation from it. There's probably some other rationale for whether it's sunny, you know, or, or whether it's going to rain and things like Mm -hmm. that. Temperature is an ancillary feature. And so these hidden Markov models basically model the world such that there's observations, there's something that you want to predict, but you can't directly observe what's causing, you know, the thing that you want to predict. And so we cover those types of models, uh, hidden Markov models. And then basically what we do is for each one of those theories, those, those model building theories that we call explainable models, because they're based and rooted in math and statistics, Mm -hmm. We have a set of new chapters. I have a set of new chapters in the book that give you a real example of building a real-world data set from whole cloth, getting the data, downloading it, preparing it, and cleaning it. This is the magic trick, and I'm going to pause because I want to hear some feedback from you. (laughs) But this is the trick is that everybody thinks machine learning is easy, but what they don't, and I make this bear in the book, you got to do a lot of work to clean data to make it clean for machine learning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's something that we've covered on the show a bunch of times is just, yeah, if you don't have good data, then you don't have, you wind up with a good model. And sometimes you'll wind up with a model that gives you the right answer for the wrong reason, or, you know, it'll give you sometimes the right answer for the right reason. And sometimes, you know, you get the idea, but um, the better your data is, the better your model is going to be. And and that just follows along. But sometimes it is like you said, um, with your temperature, um, idea for for a second right sometimes it's hard to know if the the data is good or not right and so you've got to make judgment calls based on what's important to you and what kind of outcome you want from your model so that you can actually reliably get the kind of output you want and sometimes the data set is going to be a more accurate guess than you could come out with on your own given the same data and sometimes your data set's going to be complete and you'll be able to get with reasonable accuracy, the, the answers you want from your system. Totally. Yeah. And if you talk about where people are going in the field nowadays and and some new and hot areas, like obviously the collection and preparation of labeled training data comes at a high cost. And so everybody's Mm -hmm. figuring out how to do learning with less labels today. How do we do zero shot, one shot learning, generative, you know, type of approaches to solve things like that and other types of sort of automation that can solve or close the gap. Everyone wants to pay a cent per label, like labeling cat videos. It's cheap, (laughs) you know, and uh, to transform the hard problems like labeling Martian geology, you know, that you need a PhD for into those, and not cent problems, but maybe dollar, $2 per label, you know, and and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, and that makes sense too. The other thing is, is that, some of the data may be easy to understand, like temperature data or, you know, how much light there is outside or what the wind is doing. But you may be trying to predict something that you, you know, at that level, you need the PhD for. And so it's not so much that you don't understand what the data is or what it means. What what you run into is, I don't know if I have everything here that is important to the thing I'm trying to predict. Totally. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's inherent... Sometimes we learn exactly what we meant to learn. We just, like you said, we didn't know it because we were missing the things mm-hmm. that we, could, we couldn't we could learn, you know, related to that. It kind of reminds me of a story 
you know, it's it's bias in machine learning. And this is a hot topic, you know, nowadays, both from Oh yeah. Yeah. An ethical AI perspective. And, you know, so the early smart car training data sets, and even still today we have a challenge with this. The early smart cars had it had a big challenge, which was basically they tended to not stop when unfortunately they saw folks in a wheelchair. Because the mm-hmm. frankly of the, the the frankness of the matter is they weren't trained on data that had people represented in wheelchairs or, or right. other things or people of color in different ways or things like that. Mm-hmm. They'd never seen them and they they didn't, there was nothing in those networks. You know, we haven't talked about neural networks yet, but, you know, I assume the audience kind of knows that we'll talk about these. But yeah, yeah the, uh, you know, they hadn't seen it. So they didn't, they didn't have a label associated with that class of data and, and thus. So bias creating data sets without bias, you know, mm-hmm. learnability, the limits of learnability, you know, these are all really interesting research challenges nowadays. Yeah, I've heard some other ones where I'm trying to think of one that's not too offensive, but kind of gets the point across. I think the the most poignant one of these was they showed a whole bunch of pictures, you know, they trained it on a whole bunch of pictures. And then basically, they gave it a photograph of the gate to Auschwitz, right? And the machine learning said, Oh, that's a park, you know, that's, you know, kind of that's a nice place to go and, yeah. and hang out, right? Yeah. And it's like, no, no, you know, and yeah, it just doesn't have that context because nobody has given it enough data to train that context into it. That's exactly right. That's right. And so, so framing this a little bit, you know, in elements of, of the prior discussion, you know, uh, basically each one of these models has their benefits and trade-offs, you know, mm-hmm. like regression, you know, has the benefit that it can predict any type of continuous data and things and give you easy confidence on it because it can predict the variance or the bias between its prediction and those continuous types of model fittings that it does. Um, classification, especially if you use things like softmax, can also give you confidence, you know, associated with the differences between classes and things like that. So they have hidden Markov models have a different advantage because they're explainable in the sense that they can tell each, it's a series of basically multiplicative predictions along the way. So at each step, Mm -hmm. you know, that it imputes and infers things it gives you. So all of them have their, you know, benefits and trade-offs in terms of what data they can do and, and the model variability. And then, you know, when you start to take data to it, like when you do classification and you're doing sentiment classification, you know, you may only start out like trying to predict, say, just positive and negative sentiment, but you can do tricks at the end to basically differentiate the classes even further. I, I'm i reminded of basically Facebook's or the social media companies uh, rolling out of the reaction framework, you know, which was like, love, hate, angry, sad, you know, and things mm-hmm. like that. This was an interesting problem, you know, and challenge, uh, but it was very easily rolled out, even without building a categorical multi-class thing, you could go from two classes to five simply by saying, what's the variance? If you want to predict one or zero, where zero is negative and one is positive and you predict 0.7, well, I could Mm -hmm. easily divide up the 0.5 to one range into two or three different classes and easily just get the same thing. And so there's all sorts of interesting you know, not just modeling, but post-processing tricks, you know, that people can do to move from one model type to another, you know, in the space. Mm -hmm. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Right. So, 
once we start talking about, okay, we, we've got this problem, we've got our data set, we've got the, the outcome or the prediction that we want it to make, how do we start pulling something together in TensorFlow? Yeah, so, so here's the really cool part about TensorFlow. So, so TensorFlow's default sort of mechanism for doing things, again, is it follows that general pattern of both training, mm -hmm. building a model, and then inferencing based on that. And it gives you a surrounding right. sort of framework to do this. So the framework for TensorFlow is it is compatible with all the data loading and pandas and things like that. But it also gives you this, what we call lazy executable graph. You know, and it represents everything like a lazy, like as is, you know, Vogue nowadays mm -hmm. with the sparks of the world and all these data, you know, lazy loadable graphs. TensorFlow doesn't just make a model a model. It makes the data loading and model inference training a model as well. Like, so say you have a series of steps to take a data set and do things like, like I talk about this in the book. So let's say that you want to take those audio files, you know, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, not audio files, Let's say I give you a bunch of Android positional files. And it's basically each file is like an Excel spreadsheet. It is your over a five-minute, you know, 10-minute resolution. Each row in the spreadsheet is like a hundred samples, you know, say every 10 seconds of your XYZT position, right? You know, X and Y, Z is, you know, the space, and T is over time at the time step. And and so we take those positions from the accelerometer. We've got them in each of those files. And maybe what we want to do is we want to do some unsupervised clustering and find the people who, you know, had similar, say, differentiations between their points over time. We call this acceleration mm -hmm. and eventually something like jerk, right, which measures the big fluxes between sets of points, you know, or values over time. So right. to get this learning in TensorFlow, like, yes, here's the magic thing about TensorFlow. You can actually build a k-means clustering model in TensorFlow as a graph, you know, well, your graph may start out with taking these data points, preparing them, you know, as a set of vectors or a matrix. So that describes some data flow process. Guess mm -hmm. what you do in TensorFlow to do it? You load the data, you define your graph, which is a series of data flow operations. It may involve loading a CSV file or even before that, iterating over a bunch of CSV files, loading them just using Pandas or CSV Reader and Python, and then mm -hmm. taking them and putting them into a tensor matrix. That whole set of operations is only evaluated when you click go, you know, it, that the data preparation steps. And maybe the steps to do k-means clustering on that is that we say, oh, you know, I think that there are you know, amongst the 19 participants and all of their points and the tens of thousands of rows of these four-dimensional data sets, maybe I want to divide, I know that people were walking, climbing, jumping, or whatever, and I want to just fit this K equals five to the different activities they were doing, their data points. And so K-means clustering is the process. It's an iterative process that the model building step for this, you can describe as a data flow graph as well. You know, you start out in the data flow graph by putting the points anywhere, picking a random centroid, you know, basically computing mm -hmm. the distance from all the points to the centroids, updating the centroids based on it. And you do this, you know, through 100 or two th or 2,500 or however many iterations based on, it's a trade-off. These are decisions you make when you're trading your model. That whole set of things in TensorFlow is a data flow graph that you can describe and build or leverage a library once you've built this, you know, py you could, leveraging Pythonics, you know, capabilities to do object-oriented classes and library building. So 
you know, if you do this 10 times in TensorFlow, you're going to then build a library and people have around k-means or even the model building mm-hmm. part two. That itself is a lazily executable graph. So not as just, not only is your data preparation and loading from CSV file to basically now doing a k-means clustering, you know, itself a data flow graph, which means it's only going to evaluate when you basically do the reduce step or the go step at the end. And in this case, the go step are, say, those five classes you want of data points and what people are doing to basically infer based on people's positional data, what of those categories they fit into doing. Okay. So in TensorFlow, you describe this as a graph. There's not a ton of code. You know, there's less code because you're only executing it then. And what TensorFlow figures out in the background for you are things like placement, what, what goes on the CPU or the GPU, what it figures out, you know, is like integration besides placement, you know, of it, like how it should best split that data flow up in that data flow graph into series of jobs that can execute together or in parallel. It figures all that out for you. And then from a resource perspective, you know, it, it basically then runs, you know, and, and generates it. And at any time in TensorFlow, Especially, so in the original version of TensorFlow, you had to do all sorts of like extra code, like TensorFlow 1, you had to basically define these placeholder variables and then inject data into them, you know, or define the steps at which you take your Python data or your whatever data and put it in these tensors. In TensorFlow 2, one of the magic things they added is they said, hey, you know, Python's a good language, object-oriented, runtime, let's just leverage Pythonic things. And so they did away with all the placeholders and everything else in TensorFlow 2. And you don't have, you just write Python code and the data is injected from Python. And, uh, and so, yeah. And so, so basically the beauty of TensorFlow is it's a lazily executable graph. It figures out where to run it on GPUs or CPUs. And yeah, and you can analyze that graph. There's something like TensorBoard that you can look at, say, you know, the learning or variables that you tell it to monitor along the way. And these themselves are also just operations on the graph completely independent of your actual data preparation, model building, and inference steps in the code. That makes it sound a whole lot easier than I thought it might be. <laughs> yeah. Well, and anyone, you know, the, I'll just, one other delineation that I think TensorFlow does good. It sounds like I'm, you know, I work at Google. I just, I'm a mm-hmm. fan, you know, of it. I, uh, you know, you know me, Charles, uh, you know, it's the open source in me. I've, I've even had some PRs accepted. I fixed some of their documentation and their examples. But um, the thing I like about TensorFlow, different from maybe more modern machine learning frameworks, is most people just jump straight to mm-hmm. <laughs> the unexplainable models. They go straight into, oh, well, th- you know. Oh, yeah. Can, yeah, we can solve this. It's a classification problem. Let's build a neural network. <laughs> okay, sure, you can do it. And so a lot of APIs, I mean, even I saw this a little with the Torch community, mm-hmm. they're kind of like optimized, assuming that that's or, or fast AI or thing. They're, they're assuming you're just going to go straight into building networks. And that's cool. You know, and whatever, they're a little harder and they're more unexplainable. Mm-hmm. The thing I like about TensorFlow is that process I just described is true whether or not that middle model step building part, you're building a biologically inspired neural network, an LSTM, an RNN, an autoencoder, whatever, uh, right. CNN, or if you're building one of the explainable models, it works the mm-hmm. same exact way. Makes sense. So you've mentioned PyTorch a few times and I've, you know, we've, we've talked about PyTorch and we've talked about TensorFlow on the show, but usually when I get people to compare them, you know, it's they basically tell you why the one they prefer is better than the other one, right? Yeah. And I'm a little curious, you know, since you have people that work in PyTorch, 
and it sounds like they're getting work done in PyTorch at JPL. Um, is there is there a trade-off to using one over the other? Is there a, an instance where I might pick one and not the other? And and what are the differences? Yeah. So for me, you know, I, I think this really depends on your role, how much time you have, right. and what you're trying to accomplish. So most of my folks at JPL, you know, they they laugh at me or they make fun of me and they call me a dinosaur. Heck, <laughs> I, I'm still that's fine. I'm still <laughs> dude, I was on the board of Apache. We're maintaining some web server there you know, from the NCSA 1990s days. So you, mm -hmm. you'll never kill me with using an old piece of software because you can teach an old dog new tricks. And, uh, but, you know, besides that, from what I've heard and what I understand, and I haven't deeply, you know, done much at all or anything in, in Torch. So take this with a grain of salt. But my my folks on the innovation team at JPL really do enjoy the Torch framework. And And basically the best way I could describe it is it's, high-level API support, elegance, and ability mm -hmm. to get your job done. And so for them, they're, they're, they don't care. They weren't like me. They all came out with this knowledge. You know, they came out of the Northwestern Analytics Program, or they were already, you know, people trained today, right. I think we're a little bit different trained than maybe we were back in the day as, you know, we used to all be mathematicians, mm -hmm. but we called ourselves computer scientists because there was no computer science degree. Or, you know, right. now now it's like they come out and they already learn math and stats and everything else. And I had to go back and like deeply put my head in the books when I was, you know, yep. getting a PhD or whatever to do that. So, you know, my folks come out and they don't care that they had to, re they, they already know regression or they already know all the low level APIs or they already know what injecting placeholders are, you know, they get all that. And so they want a high level elegant API to just get the job done and build exponentially. And so I'm like, from what I can understand, although TensorFlow 2 has solved some of those problems, mm -hmm. you know, from the TensorFlow 1 days, they already had a lot of buy-in because they embraced that first in the Torch community, you know, the elegant right. high level APIs where TensorFlow explore, exposed more under the hood. They said, especially in TensorFlow 1, Oh, you want to create a variable? It's a placeholder. And you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to bind the data to that variable. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to do some extra steps and blah, 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 blah. Now, they added eventually. And now the other de delineation is this. Some people, again, kind of like I just said, they don't build explainable models in PyTorch. Like, they're literally just building networks. They're building CNNs, RNNs, brand new networks, you know, um, all of these things. And you know, encoder decoders now, if you're working mm -hmm. a lot in speech and stuff like that. And if you're only ever living in that world and you're never going to build a hidden Markov model, like I guess ask, ask your next guest, or if you ever have this question again, ask your community this, how many people are using Torch to build hidden Markov models? I would assume very little, you know, right. But many people are still doing traditional machine learning and TensorFlow is a great framework to do that in, you know, right. but that's the trade-off, you know? Okay, makes sense. Yeah. We've talked quite a bit about your book. Um, is there anything else in the book that we haven't covered that you think people ought to hear about? Because we're kind of getting toward the end of our time here. The one thing I'll say about the book is I was you. And, you know, I came into this with a topical, not very good knowledge of machine learning. If you, you know, if you are looking to pick up the book or read it to learn not just TensorFlow, but machine learning, I was you. And so what the book is, is, really, you know, nine months plus a year of writing mm -hmm. of my blood, sweat and tears to make this easy for you. So now when you get the book, you go to the GitHub repo, there's a Docker, both for TensorFlow 2. I've backported all the code to work on TensorFlow 2. It totally works. You can get the TF2 Docker. 
And you can get a TensorFlow 1 Docker if you want to use that, because that's still used up to 1.15. It uses circa a couple months ago, at least the latest versions of each, although these are changing. The data comes with the Docker too. So typically, you know, the snake oil sometimes with machine learning is, oh, get my code. Oh, you want to do something with it? Well, go collect the data set and share it, <laughs> you know, and stuff. I've already done that. So every example, you can click through all the Jupyter notebooks, run each cell. The data is already there. It's referenced locally. It comes on the Docker for you. I've collected all the data, including the new data. So you can run through all the examples, see all the, not just run the machine learning, but get an ROC curve for everything, right. understand what an ROC curve are and errors and biases. It's all there. So. So I guess the last question I have is, you know, you're a director of something or other at NASA. Um, here, I've got it right here. Division manager. In, is it? But you said that you moved up since then, right? So the the CTO or the CTIO at JPO, the mm -hmm. Chief Technology and Innovation Officer, manages the innovation team. So a dual right. hat that I have is I I manage a multifunctional team of the in, innovation okay. division. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is 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 this kind of a hobby for you, or is this something that you actually use at work, or do you work with other people that use it at work? Both. So. It, for me, I, this is one of those things I believe is like there comes a point in your career, whether, you know, in people management, technical management, some people pick or split. And when you, mm -hmm. if you pick people management, you lose your technical. If you pick technical management, you know, you're going to be technical, but you're not the person to help that person's career. You know, you're, right. an, you're more of an individual. Everyone always tells me you have to pick. I refuse. To me, I think you got to, if you want to do both, you know, you kill yourself and you do both. And so that, for me, I had to understand what my people were talking about when they build stuff. Mm -hmm. And just right. to let you know from open source, like, you know, Charles, I still contribute to open source. You know, yep. uh, old dinosaur here has some PRs accepted at uh, TensorFlow because, you know, I still want to help people. Fancy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So. so the other question I have is what kinds of problems are you solving at JPL with these techniques? So probably the most the best one I could say is sort of this. Let me explain it this way. So there's going to be a rover landing on Mars next week, Mars 2020, Perseverance. It is very similar to Mars Science Laboratory, which is the 2012 Curiosity rover that was the mm -hmm. last kind of like car size, Volkswagen bug size rover. Um, that one had a bunch of you know lab, uh, instruments on it. So does this. This has even more. And this, the core mission of Perseverance is literally to find life. You know, it's not like it's side mission and it's cool while it's looking at the rocks if it finds its core mission is to find life and um and so this perseverance rover which will land february 17th um it also has a helicopter on it called ingenuity it is the first it's the charles you know right it's the it's the wright brothers moment it's the wright brothers moment on mars okay and it's got a drone this ingenuity helicopter on it okay so now really quick uh, physics for you and your viewers, Earth to Mars is eight minutes round trip light time. You know, so we send right. a message to Mars. It takes eight minutes to get basically the communication back from that. And so because that's a very, very thin pipe from Earth to Mars, we mm -hmm. have to really use that very thin pipe efficiently. And the way that we do right. it is for Mars surface planning, the people that are going to plan what that rover does, you know, for the next day, they're going to use 200 images a day to figure out where to go, where to drive the rover the next day, right? That's not wow. enough. That doesn't give, because, you know, the pipe's thin and images are expensive. Mm -hmm. What if tomorrow on the rover, 
we could put a TensorFlow model because the rover, you know, the rover, the old rover has like an iPhone one processor on it. It's got a Rad right. 750. The new rovers have like Qualcomm Snapdragons, not the rovers themselves, mm -hmm. but like the Ingenuity helicopter has it. And right. future rovers will have high performance space flight computing on them. So we can run machine learning on them in the future. And if we could, what if instead of giving you 200 images back the next day to decide what to do for planning, I could give you back a million image captions. Text is cheap, right? Mm -hmm. I could give you back a bunch of captions of images using like Google right. show, and, show and tell TensorFlow model. And, you know, it might say planar rock on flatbed out in the distance, or it might say, you know, cliff or this or sandy and rocky in some, you know, description. Mm -hmm. And so basically, you know, Basically, what happens kind of related to that is that that's all some of the stuff that our team is supporting. We're testing out next generation of deployment of these models to high performance spaceflight computing, including planetary mm -hmm. rovers. And we want to enable that use case in the future. That is cool. That is really cool. So, yeah. So I have to ask just because now I'm curious. So is there any form of watching the rover land or you know watching the cameras on the lander or anything like that so couple couple things so this rover um its entry descent entry descent and landing system or edl system is very similar to the seven minutes of terror video that you can see for the 2012 mm -hmm. you know curiosity rover right. from youtube this one is also outfitted with a camera on the EDL descent. So we will mm -hmm. have video, but it won't be live streamed because of that eight minute round trip right. time. It, it will collect it and eventually be sent back. But the most earliest, bestest you know, use of that very thin pipe is to send back engineering data and some first surface images when we get there. Right. And that's going to be when everyone goes, yeah, you know, and, and mm -hmm. in a socially distanced masked way or whatever in the control room, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. uh, and so in a different way. But um, we will have video of that. The other trick, we're going to have the sounds of Mars, you know, mm -hmm. so that it actually has a microphone on it. It's going right. to be able to record that. And it's got a lot of other things. So there will be a NASA EDL uh, landing watch party watch events. And if you go to the Mars public education site, you go to mars.nasa.gov, you can get all the links. There's going to be a... Uh, you know, several things like Zoom events, other events, watch parties. And there's going to be a whole program that JPL produces and NASA produces around this that I recommend to all your viewers to check out. It'll be a shining light in a difficult time, you know, next Wednesday. I encourage everyone to watch. Awesome. Yeah, I just I went to mars.nasa.gov. This is this is cool. So, yeah, I think you just lost me about an hour or so of my time. <laughs> I go check this out. It'll be well um, spent. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess the last thing that we have is if people want to connect with you online, where do they go? So uh, I'm assuming Twitter, GitHub. Yeah, yeah, Twitter, uh, GitHub. So I'm I'm at Chris Matman, C H R I S M A T T M A N N on Twitter. The same on GitHub, and uh, go follow me on Instagram if you like seeing me dress up in various Marvel outfits, running around the Rose Bowl. I do Iron Man. I do the Avengers outfits. If you're watching WandaVision right now, come comment. I, you know, post a lot of Instagram WandaVision stuff. I'm a big Marvel fan. So nice. Very nice. And then on GitHub, you're Chris Matman as well. Same. Chris Matman. That's the thing with me. I never give myself an alias. I'm Chris Matman everywhere. Two N's. <laughs> two M's, two A's, two T's, two N's. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, we'll put links up. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on 
figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. We have one more segment on these shows. We, I don't think we did it when I was doing Teach Me to Code. And that is picks. And so it's just a shout out to people. It's like, hey, look, you know, this is something that's really great that I really love. You know, I've been watching WandaVision with my wife and my kids, and we've been enjoying that. Uh, but I'll let you shout out about that if you want. A couple of things that I do want to shout out about. So my father-in-law, we got him watching Star Trek Discovery. And we had watched the first two seasons and we were going to watch the third. We decided to wait for him, right? So we've been watching season two again. And it's a, it's a great show. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, it's on CBS All Access. So you have to have All Access to watch it, at least as far as I know. Um, but we're really, really enjoying that. And then another show that I've been watching just on my own. And it's funny because I'll watch like two or three episodes and then it'll be a few weeks. And then, you know, my wife will be gone doing something and I'll be like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch another show, you know, show. And it's, it's the Umbrella Academy on Netflix. It's kind of a different flavor show, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit weird, but I like it. So I'm going to shout out about that. And then I just want to remind people, last episode, I talked about the Dev Heroes Accelerator. If you're looking to kind of raise your profile within the programming community, that is uh, weekly group coaching. You also get access to me on uh, Voxer. And basically, the way I'm describing it to people is that I've had a few people say, well, I'm a senior developer, now what, right? In three years, I don't want to be doing the same thing in a different job, right? I want to keep growing. I want to help people, blah, blah, blah those kinds of things. I want to make more as a freelancer. And so, yeah, we get in, we help you kind of build some exposure and some influence so that you can do those things. And then you're going to sell more books, sell more courses, get a better job. All of those things kind of come out of that. So devheroesacademy.com. If you go there, there's a little bit of information there. You can also apply to be part of the accelerator. And uh, yeah, like I said, we get on a call every week and I just help people get through kind of becoming that influencer and get the exposure they want so they get what they want from their career. Chris, what are your picks? Oh, wow. I mean, I'm actually going to share Dev Heroes with my innovation team. That that sounds pretty awesome. You're the second person that mentioned, what was the name of the Umbrella show? The Umbrella, the Umbrella Academy? Yeah, you're the second person today, believe it or not, that's recommended for me to watch that on, on yeah. Netflix. So I, I've got to, you know, I, I've got to get it sort of all over that, uh, you know. Uh, for me, you know, let's see, what, what am I watching? Kind of, sadly, I've been watching a lot of the news. Uh, you know, I need to turn that off. <laughs> you know, there's... There's an upcoming, you know, special, uh, you know, that that's really important, you know, for me or whatever. And it, it has to do with, you know, uh, Kobe Bryant's death, you know, oh, yeah. and, and, you know, I've been I've been watching, you know, specials kind of about that and, you know, kind of like on remembering Kobe Bryant because that, you know, I'm an L.A. guy and, you know, I kind of grew up with him. And so that it's funny, you know, 
everything kind of bad with the pandemic started just shortly after, you know, everything happened, you know, with him last, last January, I've been thinking a lot about that, but yeah, I mean, you know, besides that, I just want to shout out to families, first responders and everybody that's been really, you know, helping during the pandemic, uh, you know, and everything else. And I hope everybody is, is doing all right with their family and safe and, uh, you know, getting by because it's, it's a struggle right now. Yep, absolutely. Interestingly, the, the Kobe Bryant, I mean, love him or hate him. And I know there were people that, that loved him. I know the people that, were, that, that didn't like him, but he was a tremendous basketball player. And everything I looked at that he was working on after he retired, he, he had his hands in a whole bunch of stuff that was doing good for people. So yeah, it was really sad that we lost him. What was that? A, was there a documentary or something that's coming out uh, about him? Yeah, there is. Um, th- there's a documentary on Kobe Bryant and I'll, I'll dig it up and, and send it to you, but it's a project that I saw going around on, on Twitter and uh, maybe okay. you can share it with your listeners, but um, yeah, it's, it's being worked right now. It's, it's, it hasn't been released yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep an eye out for that and uh, see what we can do there. And then, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I talk on so many of these shows that I forget to say, yes, please be safe and take care of each other. You know, keep an eye out for, yeah, the first responders and everybody else that's still out there, you know, sometimes putting their life on the line for us because, yeah, it's it's so important. So so thank you for that. Anytime. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, thanks again for coming, Chris. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me, Charles. And uh, let's do it again before another 10 years. So yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, we're going to wrap this up. We'll have another one for you in a week. And until then, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.